Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Backyard Poultry with the Chicken Whisperer Radio Show brought to you by Calm Bach Feeds. My name is Andy Schneider, but most know me as the Chicken Whisperer, author of The Chicken Whisperer's Guide to Keeping Chickens, national spokesperson for the USDA Biosecurity for Birds program, and editor-in-chief of Chicken Whisperer magazine. Each week, I welcome experts in their field to share their knowledge about different topics, including backyard poultry, show poultry, heritage poultry, gardening, cooking, and, of course, living a self-sufficient lifestyle. Be sure to visit us online at chickenwhisperer.com, where you can follow us on Twitter, become a fan on Facebook, and subscribe to the totally free digital edition of Chicken Whisperer magazine. Once again, I'd like to thank all of you for tuning in today to Backyard Poultry with the Chicken Whisperer, brought to you by Kalmbach Feeds. At Kalmbach Feeds, our layer pellets and crumbles are all natural, antibiotic-free, with no animal byproducts. Formulated just for laying hens, our feed is fortified with essential amino acids and calcium to ensure maximum production of nutritious, tasty, strong-shelled eggs. From our family to yours, feed your hens the way nature intended. Pure, wholesome, goodness. Kalmbach Feeds. Find a dealer at KalmbachFeeds.com. That's K-A-L-M-B-A-C-H, Feeds.com. Or order your layer pellets and crumples today on Amazon.com. Kalmbach Feeds is a proud sponsor of The Chicken Whisperer. When you need an incubator, think Brincy, the incubation specialists. Brincy has been a world-leading manufacturer of quality incubators for almost 40 years. They manufacture incubators that hold anywhere from 7 to 380 eggs with high-quality electronic and digital controls, including precise humidity controls and programmable egg turning, all at surprisingly affordable prices. Enter the coupon code WHISPER at checkout and receive 10% off your entire order. Order your new incubator today at Brincy.com. That's B-R-I-N-S-E-A.com. Tasty Grubs by Tasty Worms Nutrition are the original dried black soldier fly larva made right here in the USA. Tasty Grubs are high in protein and calcium, vital nutrients for laying hens. Customers have reported an increase in shell quality, egg taste, and a reduction in molting time. For a limited time, get a bag of Tasty Grubs 100% free. Simply enter tastyworms.com forward slash whisper into your web browser and add one to your cart today. Save 10% on all other products such as dried mealworms by entering the coupon code whisper at checkout. That's tastyworms.com forward slash whisper. Ware Manufacturing has been building quality hutches since 1983. Ware manufactures modern chicken hutches, barns, pens, and nest boxes designed especially for the backyard flock. Ware offers hutches and pens for every yard size and every chicken keeper's budget. Visit their website at waremfginc.com. That's W-A-R-E-M-F-G-I-N-C.com. Or call them to find a retailer near you at 1-888-824-7257. Ware Manufacturing. Ideal Poultry has been a family-owned and operated business since 1937. 
Their business is built on customer service and quality poultry. From rare white and brown egg layers to broilers, ducks, turkeys, and bantams, Ideal Poultry is the largest supplier of backyard poultry in the United States, shipping close to 5 million chicks annually. Visit them online at idealpoultry.com. That's idealpoultry.com. Hi, I'm country music artist Nathan Osmond, and you're listening to Backyard Poultry with the Chicken Whisperer. Listener, you know it is the season. Normally, uh, the week of Thanksgiving, we start normally uh, playing a couple of uh, chicken choir uh, Christmas songs um, between Thanksgiving and, and Christmas here on the show. And a uh, great collection. And you can actually find a couple of different CDs if, if you're just crazy about that um, at eggcartons.com. That's where these came from. And they actually contracted with the folks to do this, to create this CD. Uh, and actually, there's a couple of them that are out. And so if you're wondering where you can get your uh, Chicken Christmas Carol CD, um, I'm willing to bet they still have them over at eggcartons.com. And uh, they're not outrageously expensive, quite affordable, and then uh, a great stocking stuffer for that chicken lover in your life. So we try to play that and get in the festive mood here. Uh, it is tis the season. Thanks for staying with us. Went ahead and went through the first uh, commercial break uh, early. So we uh, kind of got that out of the way and move in right into our special guest today, which is uh, poultry veterinarian, Dr. Maurice Pateski. Um And he's going to be talking today all about fowl pox. If you have already received your winter edition of Chicken Whisperer magazine in the mail or via electronically through the email, I'm not sure if they've gone out yet. I know they went to the printers last week. Uh, the digital edition normally comes out a little uh, ahead of time. But uh, you may have already read uh, and enjoyed his article in the winter issue about Falpox. So for the folks that don't subscribe to the print edition or the electronic edition, not sure why you don't because it's free, but uh, if you don't, we're going to cover it uh, today uh, on the show, kind of a good review about Falpox with our good friend, Dr. Maurice Pateski. I'm trying to think if I have any chickens in the news for you. I don't believe I do currently. Um, other than we're really looking forward to next week's show, next Thursday, uh, Dr. McCray will be joining us, uh, and uh, it's going to be kind of a, uh, um, what do we call it? It's kind of like what was, uh, Oprah's favorite gifts or something. It's uh, chicken-related uh, ideas and gifts for the holidays. That's, that's next week. So uh, I'll be contacting a lot of uh, our sponsors to see if they want to feature something. We may be giving away prizes during the show, uh, things like that. Um, so uh, next week's show will be really cool holiday show about stocking stuffers, uh, chicken related for you or a loved one who uh, enjoys their backyard flocks. That'll be a real fun holiday show day right here. So let's get over to the phone lines and we'll go ahead and get started. Get that pen and paper out because you're going to want to take notes uh, so you can always go back and uh, and look at them if you ever suspect uh, foul pox or, uh, or end up uh, having uh, one or two in your flock to, to have this or it uh, spreads through your whole flock, which we hope it never happens. But at least you'll be prepared. So, uh, Doc, welcome to the show. Hi, Andy. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, yeah, great. Thank you, as always, coming on uh, once a month and and, and uh, participating also in the magazine and uh, off-air talk. But probably within the next, probably next week, uh, you'll receive um, I don't know ten or twelve of the. Uh, um, uh, topics for the uh, Factor Chicken Poop book that you're going to be participating in. So uh, that probably towards the end of next week, you'll get that list and we can start working on those uh, over the holiday. Obviously, I'm Dr. McRae and the others, and uh, we'll get those uh, knocked out for the first, I think about mid-January, I think, so due dates. There's not a huge rush on that. I think there'll be about a dozen of them, so we're looking forward to that. So thank you for all you do 
for uh, all of our chicken fans out there and chicken keepers. But today we wanted to review a little bit about foul pox, kind of fresh in your mind. We just did the article on it for the winter issue, but this will be great uh, for all of our listeners who may not subscribe to the magazine to learn a bit, a little bit more, learn a little bit about more uh, foul pox. So I'm going to turn it over to you, my friend. Yeah, sounds good. Um, so first of all, I love your idea about uh, having a whole show dedicated to, to gift ideas. I think there's so much uh, interesting stuff out there that you kind of randomly see from all the different chicken people that we interact with. It would be nice to have kind of a, a central area where you guys can talk about it and have uh, different speakers and people call in about it. So it's a very clever idea. I, I congratulate you on doing that. And it sounds like it's an annual tradition from, from what you were saying. So Yeah, you know, we'll talk about probably the chicken swing and then some stocking stuffers like the Tasty Grubs and, and um, you know, maybe the newest waterers on the market or just, just really anything and from little stocking stuffers like some uh, mealworms all the way up to maybe a, a feature poop. So and everything in between. So that'll be next next week. So we're looking forward to that. Yeah, we try to do that once a year. Actually, up until the last two years because it was really, I mean, it really was a lot of hard work. Um, and everybody's busy during the holidays, we had what we called not a Black Friday sale, but we called it the Black Osterlorp sale. <laughs> and so we kind okay. of deal with all, all of our sponsors and everything and said, hey, a product or two that you'll put on a deep discount for Black Osterlorp Friday and uh, that people could shop from the comfort of their home from their home while they're doing all their other shopping and get some things uh, on sale from our sponsors. But it was really a lot of work and to try to it, it was it was it was great. So the last couple of years, we got busy in our schedule too, and said, you know what, I think I'll just pass this year. We may entertain it again later, but but that was always fun to to do as well. Just a lot of work doing that big Black Friday, uh, Black Australia Friday sale that everybody enjoyed. So, but um, yeah, thanks for that. We'll look forward to that show uh, next week. It's always a fun one. Maybe we'll have some prizes to give away as well. So, yeah. But thanks thanks for that comment. Yeah. So um, so I was gonna talk a little about avian pox today and uh, a couple of things I just wanted to mention before it um, there was a really nice um, publication out of uh, some from, from some researchers uh, at University of California Davis and they just wanted to look at um, all the dead birds that are submitted to the diagnostic labs um, through in our state and most states have a diagnostic lab you can submit uh, your dead chickens or sick birds, and they will uh, euthanize them and then do necropsies on them with a goal of trying to find, you know, what are these birds dying from? Um, and they look for kind of the scary diseases, uh, even influenzas and the exotic Newcastle diseases. But they also look for kind of the run-of-the-mill diseases, Merrick's disease, um, things like avian pox, which we're going to be talking about today, uh, coccidiosis, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so when you looked at that at that publication, and I would imagine it's probably somewhat similar across the nation, um, if you looked at the major three um, categories of infectious disease, viruses, bacteria, and parasites, viruses were the most common of those three kind of major areas as far as um, what backyard chickens in California were dying from. And then if you dive down just a little deeper and you look within those viruses, Merrick disease, which doesn't surprise, which shouldn't surprise anyone, was the most common viral disease um, that was causing mortality in backyard chickens in California. And that was about 65% of all the um, of all the birds that were that, that that died that were backyard birds in California for about a five-year stretch. Um, that percentage of them um, were dying from Merrick's disease. And then below that, the next one you had was actually avian pox. So usually when I kind of give these backyard um, biosecurity and disease uh, conversations, we don't have enough time to really talk about um, Merrick's disease and coccidiosis and salmonella and avian pox. So avian pox kind of gets left off the list, and I don't really ever get a chance too often to talk about it. And then recently over the last, probably three or four or five months, I've just been receiving. I probably get a good two to three phone calls, emails, texts um, a week um, just from backyard enthusiasts asking me various different questions. And just anecdotally, I've been getting a lot of questions that really sound like their birds are dealing with kind of the, the dry uh, version of avian pox. So that kind of got me to thinking, you know what, I'm, I'm probably not paying enough attention to avian pox. I'm probably focusing too much on these biggies like coccidiosis, 
um, and Merrick's disease, for example. But we 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 still need to obviously focus on some of these other um, diseases that are just as important. And the, and the data, aside from the anecdotal kind of evidence, the data really suggests that it's also really important to focus on. So that was kind of where I kind of came up with the nexus of the idea, like we need to probably spend a little more energy on this. And this is probably the time in the radio show where I really want to reiterate you know, when we think about disease control and biosecurity, one aspect of biosecurity is knowledge. If we don't know how diseases are transmitted, we can't really do a good job of biosecurity. We can put our fences up and we can do all the things that we, we know we're supposed to do and we read about as far as dedicated clothing and making sure our feed bins are nice and secure so rodents can't get in there. But, you know, the, the next step, the real next level is really understanding why we do each one of those things. And, and one way we can accomplish that is by uh, knowing about each disease, each common disease and how it's transmitted. So then we can kind of think about in our specific backyard, what risks do we see um, that we can mm -hmm. mitigate in order to prevent our birds from getting sick? So just as an example, with avian pox, one of the common ways that avian pox gets spread is via mosquitoes that are infected with the avian pox virus. And they can spread that virus from chicken to chicken to chicken um, by um, when they get their blood meals, for example, on um, when they get their blood meals from that chicken. So as we all know, mosquitoes, in order to breed, need water. Um, and we all know from, you know, experience, um, kind of public health messages and things like that, that one of the ways that we can mitigate um, mosquito breeding grounds is by they like breeding in kind of um, swampy, small amounts of water, kind of the water that you'll see in your gutters and things like that. Um, so intuitively then, if we know this is one of the ways that the disease is spread, uh, if we know avian pox is common in our geographical area, then we, we need to make an extra effort, especially this time of year, to prevent any water, especially kind of muddy, uh, shallow ponding water from being around our coop um, because obviously those mosquitoes can breed there. You can use larvicides also. Um, but the, the simplest thing is just to make sure that there's no pooling of water. So mosquitoes, um, which can be carriers of the virus, um, aren't, um, don't have adequate um, habitat to, to breed and then to um, infect your flock. So that's one thing I wanted to say is that, you know, when we think about biosecurity, I think we always focus on, you know, kind of the, the, the basics. Um, but it's really important, I think, at a certain level, in order to really move to the next level of biosecurity, that we understand not only why we're doing things, but we understand every single common disease at some level. Um, we understand how they're transmitted. We understand how they're controlled. Um, and if we can do that, I think it, it, it allows us, I think, to – um, not just follow the cookie-cutter recommendations of biosecurity, which are essential and really important, but allows us to be a little more um, targeted with respect to our own backyard, and not just thinking about our coop, but thinking about the environment around the coop. So the gutters of your house, for example, um, those gutters, you know, as we all know, those gutters might be close to your, to your coop, and, and we focus so much on our coop, we don't always think about, okay, what's outside of our house that, that, that could be um, causing some problems potentially uh, for our chickens, especially if those mosquitoes are carriers. That's one thing I wanted to point out, just in, that, in a kind of that broadest sense about, um, sure. about the disease and, and how we should approach it. Um, so the typical scenario, so, so dry, I'm going to mainly focus on the, the, the avian dry pots. There really are kind of two forms. There's a, a wet or a diphtheric form, and I'll just call it wet avian pox or dry avian pox. It comes from the exact same virus. Um, usually what you'll see um, is the dry pox, and that's a good thing because the wet pox causes more mortality, causes more, more death. In the dry pox, so we we it's a good thing that most of our birds um, typically get the, the dry pox. And typically, one of the nice things about avian pox is usually I'll get that phone call and people will say, "Well, my bird's sick," and they'll explain that the birds have uh, GI problems or they're you know they're having respiratory problems. And 99 out of 100 times over the phone, even if I saw that bird, if I was if I was right on the farm we wouldn't be able to diagnose a disease until we did some diagnostic work, until that bird literally went to uh, euthanize that bird, you opened it up, you took it to a diagnostic lab, 
you did um, bacteriology and histopathology, all these fancy things in order to really figure out what's wrong with that bird. Um, and there are ways to do that that, 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 don't, that you ultimately don't have to euthanize the bird, but for the most part, when we think about backyard poultry, we're really applying a lot of the lessons learned that we know from the commercial poultry industry. And if you're in a large barn in the commercial poultry industry and you have a handful and you have birds that are sick, um, you want to protect the rest of that flock. And euthanizing a handful of birds to protect the rest of that flock makes a lot of sense. So that's one of the reasons why in poultry medicine, we very commonly will say you should submit a bird to a diagnostic lab. Now, that doesn't mean you always have to do that. In some cases, especially with avian pox, um, you don't need to euthanize a bird to diagnose, to diagnose it. And in fact, it's one of the few diseases where over the phone, someone will kind of describe something to me. They'll describe, you know, these kind of pink scabs um, that are, you know, pretty, pretty kind of pinpoint, a little bigger than that, um, um, or those the, around the, the kind of non-feathered portions of the chicken's body, the wattles, the eyelids, uh, the comb. Um, so those, those scabs, you know, not, there's, there's not very many explanations for why those scabs would be there other than avian pox. So it is kind of nice when I do get that phone call and that text and that email with a picture in it, it is kind of nice I can say, well, that's most likely avian pox as opposed to the other reality, which is most of the time when people call me, I'm like, well, we're going to have to, you're going to have to submit a bird to a diagnostic lab or you're going to have to go to a veterinarian because it could be several other things. So it is one of those nice diseases that you can actually um, make a pretty strong diagnosis based upon um, just those um, just those lesions in the areas that I mentioned. Um, so the other thing I wanted to kind of talk about a little was, you know, how does the virus get into my flock? And, and we talked a little about that already, um, but it's, it's, I want to talk about a couple different scenarios because when we think about biosecurity, one of the things we think about the most is this concept of what a fomite is. And just to, just to kind of rehash what that is, fomites are, um, inanimate objects that can carry disease from uh, point A to point B. So an example of a fomite could be a tire. So for example, if someone is on a farm and that farm has a disease on it, let's say salmonella, and the, the bottom of the tire gets exposed to that and then you drive that into your farm, you're transmitting disease from point A to point B using a inanimate object, something that's not living, like the rubber of the tire. So the other example is you yourself, your shoes can be fomite, um, and you yourself can be fomite. So one of the things that what happens a lot is when people see scabs on their birds, especially when they cover like the eyelids and things like that, um, you know, they obviously sympathize with their birds. They want to make their birds feel better. So they really focus on trying to clean those scabs up, um, and that's okay but the problem is, is that they pick up the bird, they clean up the scabs, and then they pick up another bird that doesn't have um, those scabs. And those scabs contain literally millions of viral particles in them. So what they're doing is they're transmitting the virus from one bird to the other bird. Um, and, and that's really important to think about. In reality, you never want to have your sick birds mixed with your healthy birds. So when you do notice birds have any type of sickness, including uh, fowl pox, you want to try to separate them out um, because one of the ways that the virus can spread is just that mechanical contact between the sick birds and the non-sick birds. So if you are want to separate your birds out, the next level of biosecurity is when you're feeding your birds, when you're doing any kind of work in one coop versus the sick pen where you have those sick birds, it's so important to always visit the sick birds last because of that fomite concept. So you never mm -hmm. want to go to the sick birds first and then have all those potential viral particles and other things on you and then go to your healthy birds. So always start with your sick bird, with your, excuse me, with your healthy birds, and then move on over to your sick birds at the end. And then make sure when you're dealing with sick birds that you have dedicated um, um, boots or boot covers and clothing for that pen because of that fomite issue. It's so important that when you separate your birds out, you go all the way because the reality is if you're not going to have dedicated clothing and dedicated boots, you've just created um, one um, one barrier between the sick birds and the healthy birds, but now you are kind of the carrier of disease 
um, between the uh, healthy and, and, and between, excuse me, the sick and the healthy birds. So those are really important things to think about when you think about how the disease is transmitted. Mosquitoes are kind of the original or primary vector for how the disease can be transmitted. Once it's in your flock, it actually moves really slowly as far as how it transmits the, the, the disease from bird to bird to bird. A couple of nice things about avian pox is that it doesn't cause a lot, the dry form of it does not cause a lot of mortality. So the scabs all unsightly, um, they'll cause a drop in egg production, a drop in feed and water consumption, but they don't typically cause a lot of mortality. So birds will typically recover in two to four to six weeks and everything will kind of sort of be back to normal at that stage. So if you're willing to kind of take the hit in that manner, um, then it's something that you can kind of just live with at a certain point as opposed to other diseases where if you have Merrick's disease, there's a high mortality rate associated with Merrick's disease. Um, so it is a kind of a different disease from that perspective. From a, a commercial poultry perspective, it is a significant disease to deal with because it's somewhat common and um, it can cause a lot of production losses and there's an economic um, aspect to that that's obviously important to consider um, in that scenario. So the next thing I was going to, and feel free to jump in anytime you have any questions, Andy, or if I'm straying from a, a topic that you wanted to kind of touch on a little more. So one of the nice things, oh, sorry, Jefferson. No, I said we'll do, absolutely. Okay, just making sure. Um, so one of the really nice things about, about avian pox, it is one of the two vaccines that I do recommend for backyard poultry enthusiasts. Now, the first one is a no-brainer in my mind, and that's the Merrick's vaccine. All of our backyard chicken, chickens should be vaccinated against Merrick's. They should either be done um, by the uh, that each, they should either be done, excuse me, in ovo by the um, breeding company, or it should be done by the hatchery, or it should be done at day one of age by us. Um, and we can have, I think we've talked about that before, but it's a really important topic, and I really want to stress the, the importance of vaccinating against Merrick's. Uh, there are other things we can do to control Merrick's, but Merrick's is ubiquitous. The virus is everywhere. It causes high mortality, um, and it's the most common source of mortality in backyard chickens um, across our country. So if we really want to have a positive effect on our birds, i.e. we don't want to kill them, um, we want to make sure our birds are vaccinated against Merrick's. There's other things that we can do, but that's, that's one of the primary things. Now, the, 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 the avian pox virus, because it moves so slowly uh, in the face of an outbreak, so if you do have avian pox, and let's say you have a handful of birds that are affected and a handful of birds that are not affected, during that outbreak, you can actually vaccinate the healthy birds to prevent those healthy birds from getting avian pox. And in many cases, I will suggest that they do that. However, if you do vaccinate birds that are in lay, um, they will have production losses um, because when you're vaccinating a bird, you're basically giving them an attenuated or a weakened strain of the, of the disease. So they're going to have to, it's going to take them time to um, immunologically be able to mount a response. Um, and and, 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 and to, to, it's going to take them time to be able to um, respond to, to, the, to, to the vaccine that they were just given, and that's going to cause them to kind of prioritize how they want to um, utilize their energy. The point being that if you do vaccinate in the face of an outbreak, that's fine, but just be aware that um, you are going to have some losses in egg production. So when you vaccinate, typically in our environment in North America, um, you want to have a strong immune response in the fall or the winter. So in California, we're, we're thankfully finally getting a lot of rain, um, but we do have a lot of mosquitoes now that are starting to pop up in the fall um, and as we move into the winter. So in the perfect world, you want to vac vaccine, vaccinate your birds in the spring or the summer in order to have a nice strong immune response in the fall and winter. So just do it in, in preparation of, of when you think um, you typically have uh, your mosquitoes. You want to do it at least one season before in order to have a nice, strong immune response. 
The other thing is that backyard birds are complicated in the sense that they live a lot longer than, than most commercial birds do. So one thing that you want to consider is annual vaccination. So if you have pox in your environment, if you know your neighbors have had pox, if you've had pox before in your chickens, um, <clears throat> excuse me, then one thing you really want to consider is, okay, I'm going to be preventive now. I've had pox before. My neighbors have had pox twice. So now every year I'm just going to vaccinate my flock against pox. And that's a reasonable thing to do if you know that there's just a risk there. You do all the things about mosquito abatement that, that we talked about, whether you use larvicides, whether you just as, 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 as simple as just focusing on any kind of pooling of kind of those small muddy waters that can um, be breeding grounds for mosquitoes. Um, if the mosquito populations in your environment you know are carrying the virus, then vaccinating um, in anticipation of that is, is completely reasonable and I think a, a good strategy um, to avoid uh, avian pox getting into your, into your flock. So one thing that you, the two things you really want to think about when you vaccinate, um, A, is you really want to make sure, again, that you vaccinate a season ahead of when the mosquitoes are going to be coming. And then the other thing you really want to consider, again, is that, is that annual vaccination type strategy. If you do it once, um, you, you most likely a year or two years down the line, those birds will not have immunological memory when they are re-exposed to the virus. A lot of this we just don't know because a lot of this research is done on commercial birds, and commercial birds typically don't live much longer than a year in many situations. Um, because they're just not productive at that point. So the recommendations on these annual vaccinations are kind of when you try to read a lot of the research and try to understand how the vaccines work. Um, recommendation is, my recommendation would be, based upon that literature, uh, would be just to, to do an annual vaccination if you know there's a risk. Um, so when you think about the vaccines that you would use, um, it's the, the, the methodology is what's called a wing method, and it actually uses what's called like a, a, a two-needle applicator. And if you can kind of visualize, literally, it's, it's like two little prongs, um, and you dip those two prongs into uh, your vaccine, and then you scratch um, the, wing, um, the wing web. Um, and when, when I say the wing web, it's on the inside of the wing, kind of where the elbow basically is, um, that skin part. And what you're looking for um, after you vaccinate them is you wait, and I'll talk a little more about how you would how you would use the app, how would how you would do the uh, vaccine in a minute. But what you do is you um, you vaccinate them, and then you wait seven to ten days, and then you look for what we call a take. And a take basically shows that we've had a uh, immunological response to the vaccine. So remember, the vaccine is just a um, 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 an attenuated, it's just a weakened form of avian pox. So we want to make sure that they had a reaction because if they didn't have a reaction, then for whatever reason, the vaccine didn't work and we need to reconsider revaccinating that bird. But after seven to 10 days, if we have um, a take, which is basically just a kind of a scarring, inflammatory, kind of reddened, scabby area where we put those vaccines, um, from that two-needle applicator after seven to ten days, then we know, okay, that, that bird was vaccinated perfectly. They, have a, they will have a good immune response um, if they are challenged with the, um, with the virus from, from the environment. Um, so it's really important not just to, vac just to vaccinate that bird, but it's really important to vaccinate the birds and then wait to see if the take um, uh, happened. Because if the take didn't happen, then we didn't vaccinate effectively, and um, it's really important when we think about vaccines. It's really easy to give vaccines. Sometimes it's a little harder to give vaccines the way that they're supposed to be given, and if they're not given correctly, um, either via an aerosol route or a water route or this, um, this, 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 this applicator, this wing stick method that I just described for the avian pox, um, then um, you just did all your work for nothing, and then people are going to complain, well, my vaccine didn't work, for example. So it's really important right. to always look for that take. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention is that avian pox is, is, is pretty ubiquitous in avian species, meaning that it's in, there are so many
many different birds that actually can get avian pox, and it's been demonstrated literally, I think, in like over 200 species of birds, including wild birds. So there's a lot of different types of avian pox, and the general recommendation at this point is to use two different types of vaccines. There is a fowl pox vaccine, but there is also a pigeon pox vaccine. And in order to get adequate coverage for the different types of fowl pox that are floating around, the recommendation is typically to get both vaccines, the fowl and the pigeon pox, mix them together, and then vaccinate using that, that um, wing stick method. Um, you can combine both vaccines together and then stick them in using that, um, two, that, that wing stick method of vaccination where you use that two-needle applicator. And it literally is just two little needles. You dip it in the vaccine, and then you basically um, puncture um, the inside of the, the wing web, basically just a little um, right where the elbow is, but not uh, above that. You want to get in the skin, obviously not in the bone. Does that make sense a little? Yes, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, and then that, that area of swelling and scab formation at that injection site, that's really what you want to focus on seven to ten days after that. Do you know if um, the hatcheries, if it's one of the, you know, because sometimes all people, yeah, vaccinate, vaccinate. Is that something that the hatcheries would do? Do they, do they normally mix them and, and, and vaccinate for both? Or, or if you, you'd have to, if you're going to buy the vac vaccine, you would need, like you said, buy, buy both. You would know to buy both of those. You probably, or can you find them that are already mixed into one vial? Most companies sell them, I think, from my understanding, and this might be an FDA thing, they're sold separately. They can't be combined, but you can combine them. And that's okay, and people do that. Um, but they usually are not combined. Now, I have read in the literature that people will vaccinate starting at one day of age um, using some of the attenuated vaccines. I think most of the hatcheries that, that most backyard, um, <clears throat> that most companies um, that most backyard hatcheries um, sell to, most of those usually, if you can get them to get a, give a merits vaccine, then you're doing really well. I'm not exactly sure how many of them. It's, not, it's, it's, it's a little different than, than the commercial industry in that they might not offer that service. But at, at four weeks of age, what I would suggest is if you, if you know you have it in your environment, Start a vaccine program with your young birds at four weeks of age with a follow-up booster vaccine given about one month before egg production. That should give you about a year of protection, maybe even a little more than that. You could do experiments and say, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to do the four-week vaccine, and then I'm going to do the booster one month before egg production, so let's say at about you know, 15, 14 weeks or so, something like that, so it doesn't interfere with my egg production at all. And then I'm going to see what happens. So let's say a year or two out, I, 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 some of those older birds are getting avian pox. Then I know, okay, mm -hmm. my avian pox vaccine, the, my birds still don't have a good, adequate immune response to that. So I'm going to now, in my next flock, I'm going to do the four-week vaccine, the one month before they go into lay vaccine, and then I'm going to revaccinate them every year in the spring or summer in anticipation of uh, mosquito populations uh, carrying the virus in the fall and winter. And it's one of those things we just don't know enough about, especially in some of these older birds. I mean, I, I get phone calls from people who have five, six, seven-year-old backyard chickens, and we just don't have any information on, you know, a lot of different, mainly reproductive problems. But as far as, you know, does a five-year-old bird still have um, an immune response from a vaccine it was given um, before it went into lay when it was 16 weeks of age. We, we just don't know the answers to that. So the, the, the okay. easiest thing to do, if you're, if you're really risk adverse, you can, you can revaccinate every year. Um, you can also alternatively say, I'm going to do the four week and the one month um, before uh, they go into lay and go from there. If you don't do either of those and you know at this point, well, yep, we've got mosquitoes or my neighbor had avian pox and now we want to start a vaccine program, I would certainly suggest um, you can start, you know, at this point and you don't have to do the booster at this point. You can just do uh, the, 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 the single vaccine, look for the take, um, and then it probably have some, um, some protection. The nice part about vaccinating a season before 
is that you're just giving the birds a little longer to have a little stronger um, immunological response if they do get um, exposed to the virus. Okay. Um, so it is one of the, the safer vaccines. Um, there are certain vaccines for backyard birds that I, I would never recommend or anything like that, but these ones are um, um, are, 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 are very safe and, and easy to use. The hard part is, and this is where every state's going to be different, um, it, it can be challenging to find um, the vaccine, and you just have to kind of call around. And, again, this is a nice part about having a relationship with a veterinarian. Uh, very often there's going to be things that you can do uh, that your veterinarian is, is probably comfortable having you do, um, but if you have a relationship with, with him or her, um, it is nice where you can say, look, I'm just going to revaccinate my birds against avian pox. Can you send me or, or provide, you know, these things for me? Um, in that situation, I thought that in some cases that's just a lot easier than having to kind of fish around online um, and through feed stores and things like that. But people can also go through feed stores. I think it's a, it's a safe vaccine. Like I said, there are vaccines where um, even in some states that you can't get them for backyard birds because uh, we worry about some of the consequences of uh, improper vaccination, but, but avian pox is certainly not one of them. Um, I think in, in, in the big picture, it, it is one of these diseases that kind of lays below the surface a little because we focus so much of our energy on salmonella for obvious reasons and merix for obvious reasons and coccidiosis for obvious reasons. There is a, a, a sub-level of diseases um, that probably don't get the attention that, that they deserve, and there, there's a whole chunk of them that are maybe not as common and don't cause as much mortality as um, the, the kind of ones I highlighted uh, a minute ago, but just deserve just as much attention at a certain level, in part because um, if we understand how to control them, um, we, we, we can really enhance our biosecurity, like I said at the beginning of the show, uh, significantly more. I was, I was about to actually mention that, that um, when people hear that, they read about it, and they say, well, if your birds happen to get this, you, you know, you may not have any die, and then they'll probably get through it in four to six weeks. And so, so that when they read that or they're familiar with that, they'll, oh, well, I don't need to do that because it's not one of the big three, or, you know, there's, there's I would rather get married, which, you know, obvious. But um, uh, you may... We may have some of that and say just oh, I just won't do that because I probably if I lose if I lose any birds it'll be one or two that I normally get through this so um, I, I was going to kind of make that point as well and also um, you may have said this earlier um, hang on where was I going with this one oh if you identify your first bird a bird in your flock and it starts to, and it has the lesions maybe on the comb you see first at that point. Um, do you recommend, because some folks with other diseases say, well, absolutely, at that point, you can just vaccinate your whole flock. Is foul pox, does it come underneath, does come under that, that general rule of thumb? Oh, I have one bird that has it. Let's just go ahead and vaccinate everybody. Now that I've Absolutely. Seen it. So I, I wouldn't vaccinate the sick bird, um, but I would, because you never want to vaccinate sick birds um, against any disease, because you're, like I said, with the vaccine, you're, you're basically exposing them to a, an attenuated, a weakened version of a disease, but you're still exposing them to, an, to a disease. So you only want to expose them to that, to that disease, even if it's a vaccinated disease um, uh, or, or a, a disease that's in the form of a vaccine. You only want to expose them to that when they're nice and healthy so they can have a nice, strong immune response to it. Because they will, as we all know from, from our childhood and uh, from from getting our vaccines, you do kind of have a tendency to, to not feel so good for for a little while after you get that vaccine. Um, and I'm guessing so. Yeah, so yes, it, it is completely appropriate. It's one of the few diseases you can vaccinate in the face of an outbreak. And I, I would assume from earlier you talked about the two different. I think you said it was a pigeon pox, and then and a couple of different strains. That if we just vaccinate with one, there we could still get. Uh, foul pox, uh, avian pox, with the other strain. Um, even yes, though we, we start, there, there, there are literally a, a there's yeast pox, and I mean if you look in the literature, there's there's a lot of different you know quail pox, all these different strains of of pox virus, 
um, the, the, the vaccine companies have really focused on the um, pigeon and the fowl pox is offering adequate coverage for the exposure that most of our commercial birds do seem to get some disease symptoms from. So that seems to be kind of the combination. As I've said before, you never want to make perfect the enemy of good. So if you only want to try one year the fowl pox and see if that gives you coverage, um, certainly reasonable to try that. And then if you needed to, you can add on the pigeon pox. Vaccines are so cheap, though. Um, you know, vaccines are only, they only work from an economic and from a, from a health perspective for, for animals. They only work if they're really safe and they're really inexpensive. Um, so they can't cause disease in the birds. They have to be, you know, they have to be protective against the disease, and they, they have to be pretty, they have to be literally pennies um, per bird, less than pennies per bird if you, if you really itemize the math out. Um, so it, it's not, it shouldn't be economically too expensive to, to get that second vaccine on there. The other really interesting thing about the virus is that, you know, if you do have it in your flock, so when we talk about mycoplasma and merics and other, some of these other diseases, it's really interesting. So even when they fully recovered, the dogma is that those birds can still be carriers of those disease. But avian pox, that doesn't appear to always be the case. And if you look at the literature, fully recovered birds do not appear to remain carriers. So if you were going to take your, your chickens to a, to a show and they were fully recovered, there's no evidence of lesions and scabs on the, the non-feathered portions, and those are all gone because, remember, those scabs basically contain um, millions of viral particles in, in those scabs. But once they're fully recovered, um, they don't appear to be carriers in the same way that if you had a bird, for example, that was uh, diagnosed with mycoplasma, um, that that bird would most likely be a carrier of mycoplasma or a potential carrier of mycoplasma for their life. Uh, even though um, they recovered from an infection. So it's kind of an interesting thing, especially as um, many of us bring our birds to shows and things like that. It gets a little complicated when we deal with some of these diseases in at what point do we not bring those birds to a show at all. If they're sick, obviously, I would never recommend bringing your birds to a show. But what if they're sick and they're recovered and it's from a disease that they can be a carrier of even if they've recovered? That gets a little complicated. With avian pox, it's a little cleaner argument um, because it does appear that uh, once they're recovered, that they're recovered. And someone had posted, um, actually, I'm going to read the, this question to you that someone posted. Is uh, is um, avian pox, foul pox, in any way, shape, or form related to blackhead and turkeys? Totally? Uh, any, no. Any, no. No? Okay. Someone wanted to know that. Not so they're wanted to get that in. Hey, I'm going to take a, a real quick commercial break, and then when we come back, we can uh, we can wrap it up. Folks, today we're going to end the different types and vaccines and the whole nine yards, and uh, there'll be more to come right after the short break, so stay with us. Hey, it's the Chicken Whisperer. If you're in the market for a new incubator, then look no further than GQF. They have a great selection of tabletop and cabinet-style incubators at prices you can afford. I love my GQF Genesis Model 1588. It has a large picture window and an automatic thermostat, which makes for a better hatch every time. Go pick out your new incubator at GQFradio.com. That's GQFradio.com. Want to protect your hens from the damage caused by an overly affectionate rooster? Nothing protects hens better than the Hen Saver Hen Apron. Hen Saver Hen Aprons come in several different sizes to fit both bantam and large fowl hens. They also come in several different styles and colors. Give your hens the protection they deserve by purchasing Hen Saver Hen Aprons today. 100% of all proceeds goes to provide care to rescued animals at Crazy K Farm in Hempstead, Texas. Purchase your Hen Saver Hen Aprons at hensaver.com. That's hensaver.com. Since 1921, Stromberg's has been a family-owned and operated business providing quality poultry and poultry supplies to their customers. Today, the Stromberg's family offers over 200 different breeds of poultry, including chickens, waterfowl, and game birds. They also offer poultry supplies for both the beginner and experienced poultry keeper. Stromberg should be on the top of your list when it's time to order your new day-old baby chicks and poultry supplies. 
Order online today at StrombergsChickens.com. That's StrombergsChickens.com. Do you provide a heat source for your backyard chickens in the winter? In most cases, it's not necessary. But if you choose to provide a heat source for your backyard chickens, it's imperative to use a safe and effective heat source, and the only one I recommend is the Sweeter Heater. The Sweeter Heater is a safe, completely sealed, washable, non-breakable, energy-efficient, long-lasting and reliable specific area heater that comes with a three-year warranty. Ditch the dangerous heat lamp this season and invest in the only heater I recommend, the Sweeter Heater. Purchase the Sweeter Heater online at SweeterHeater.com. That's SweeterHeater.com. From our family to yours, feed your chickens the way nature intended. Pure, wholesome goodness. Kalmbach Feeds. Visit our website at kalmbachfeeds.com. That's K-A-L-M-B-A-C-H feeds.com. Or order today on Amazon.com. Kalmbach Feeds is a proud sponsor of the Chicken Whisperer. Alrighty, thanks for staying with us today on Backyard Poultry with the Chicken Whisperer, brought to you by Kalmbach Feeds. Our special guest today is, of course, poultry veterinarian Dr. Maurice Pitesky. We're talking all about avian pox and uh, learning a lot. Hope you're taking lots of uh, notes and uh, check to see if there are any more questions uh, about them. And uh, there's not. And I'll, I'll go back to, like we always talk about, you always get this uh, kind of out of the way at the beginning of the show when we're talking about different types of diseases and ailments about the importance of biosecurity. And uh, I, I'm going to go out on a limb here and assume that the wild birds can carry this and because we often talk about um, removing those wild bird feeders and those wild bird baths from where your chickens have access to those for many different cases, especially when we talk about even influenza. But, but uh, I would assume that wild birds can also carry uh, foul pox and can land at the bird feeder and then your droppings and then bird baths and things like that. So wild birds can be, I guess you would call it a vector for this as well. Yes, absolutely. So, um, and that's a, that's a really good point. It's really, it's again, from our biosecurity perspective, the mosquitoes obviously are pretty hard to keep. Our, our, our normal fencing yeah. is not going to keep the mosquitoes out. We're not going to have mosquito uh, nets up all the time. Um, I don't think we have to, actually. I think we just need to have mosquito control. But wild birds um, absolutely can be carriers. And, you know, the, the thing to, to, to point out is that, you know, wild birds have their own different types of fowl pox. Um, and can be carriers, as, as you suggested and pointed out, of those uh, foul pots, um, of some of those viruses to our, our birds through that mechanical means. Um, and why do wild birds try to get into the coops? Because there's food there, because there's water there. Um, those are the things we really need to kind of focus on in order to kind of prevent those wild birds from being attracted to, to our poultry. So that's really important to point out. And the other thing that's really important to point out is, again, you know, the, the part of biosecurity where we keep our coops clean, um, those scabs, like I said, those scabs and they fall off contain literally millions and billions of viral particles in them. 
um, they can persist in the environment for a long time. So the virus, the pox virus, um, is um, there's when you think about viruses in general, there's enveloped viruses and non-enveloped viruses. The non-enveloped viruses like pox can persist in the environment for a long period of time. So it's really important when we have an infection or an outbreak of the disease, not that we just vaccinate and separate the birds out, but that we clean our coops um, and make sure that we've prevented and cleaned up any of the scabs and other dander that um, could be floating around um, in the litter and things like that to prevent um, that mode of transmission from um, just the litter itself. Um, you know, one thing, when we think about cleaning, there is just the aspect of cleaning that's just dry cleaning. So it's literally just wiping things down um, and getting rid of dust and dander that way. And then cleaning um, what in the poultry industry they refer to as the cake, that top layer of litter material, um, you know, could be a quarter inch to a half inch deep. Um, getting rid of that material just by itself and then having the rest of the litter there is really useful, um, and I really would advocate that. It's harder in backyard birds to do that because in backyard birds, we never have the equivalent of downtime. We have, we have birds in our coop literally for years and years and years, and we get a couple more birds, and they get into that coop, and we never really have that opportunity, or a lot of people don't really have that opportunity to to have a coop that is empty and doesn't have any birds in it that they can truly clean and disinfect. And that, that creates, um, I think, potential for, for, for disease transmission and, you know, this concept of these mixed-age flocks, which is very common in backyard birds too. Younger birds are, are not going to have a strong immune system as older birds. Older birds are going to be carriers of more diseases than younger birds, and these are kind of generalities. But when we mix those two together, um, you have the potential for older birds exposing younger birds to diseases um, and vice versa. If we're, if we're getting our younger birds from, you know, unreputable sources that we don't know how they were raised and things like that. Um, so when we get new birds, it's really important to, to, to quarantine them basically for you know, two to three weeks just to make sure that we're not seeing any uh, sniffles, respiratory issues. Um, GI problems, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the other quick point I wanted to make out, this is not a zoonotic disease, so that's a fancy way of saying it's not going to get us sick. Um, it's not like chicken pox or anything like that. So um, <clears throat> it, it, there are diseases that are zoonotic that, that birds can carry, salmonella being one of the ones that, that we really focus on a lot, but um, avian pox is, is not one that we would get sick from. So just wanted to point that out because I think that's, Always, people always hear avian pox. I think chicken pox. Some people yeah. think smallpox and all those type of things. So it's it's not um, it, it it is different than those than those viruses. You do you do hear that? Um, a question that just popped into my mind. You were talking about it earlier with uh, I guess kind of related to the uh, you wouldn't vaccinate that that sick bird. You could vaccinate the rest of the flock once you saw the maybe the lesions on the um, comb or the wattles or whatnot. Is is there? It reminds me of kind of like well. Um, with with human, you know, well, I'm contagious maybe 24 hours before I show signs of spreading, whether it be a stomach bug or the flu or a cold or something like that. Is there any research to say, okay, well, I have saw these, uh, I just saw this on my bird, the lesions on, on the comb and the wattle, um, and so he's showing signs so I can vaccinate the other flock, but is, is there a... a uh, contagious period, if, if you will, of, of this, or is it, is that just doesn't apply to this disease? I, I think from what you're asking, I, from if I understand it, once you see, so that gets the question is, do you ever see, um, before they're actually showing clinical signs, are they, can they still be carriers? And the answer to that would be yes, because a lot of the times you're going to get these scabs and these lesions um, that are microscopic before they get larger and more, um, more just basically before these scabs get larger and there's more viruses in them. So there is kind of that, that area where you, you can't diagnose anything um, and the birds mm -hmm. can spread disease at that point. And that happens with a lot of diseases where we, we can't, uh, detect the disease yet, but uh, the birds can be carriers of it, and, and that's um, just the reality of, of disease transmission and, and surveillance and diagnostics, um, if that kind okay. of answers your question. Yeah, it, it sounds like um, also with 
particular disease that being that uh, you're probably not going to see a lot of mortality with this is that when you see this uh, doesn't warrant a, a, a panic or a, oh my gosh, or, you know, you're just going to start seeing them dropping like flies, uh, if you will, or, you know, this is something that can be managed and you probably aren't going to lose your whole flock to this or that type of thing. You may not have uh, uh, egg production for a while, like you talked about, but um, nothing to necessarily panic about, but just do the research and then treat how you uh, choose to. Yes, yes. It, it's it's one of these diseases and that you, you put it perfectly. There are diseases where you, you kind of have to panic a little for all kinds of different reasons, including <laughs> your flock health. <laughs> Um, or public health, or, you know, if you have avian influenza, you have every right to panic. Um, and there are other diseases, you certainly have every right to panic because you don't want, you know, you might not want your whole flock to die or half of your flock to die. This is one of those ones that you can, you know, use. Uh, you don't have to panic, and you can you can respond um, kind of in, in a way that, that can protect the rest of your flock, and the flock, the part of your flock that's still sick most likely won't die anyhow. Um, unless we're dealing with that diphtheric form and that diphtheric or wet avian pox, um, you get these nodules in um, the mucous membranes of the mouth and the esophagus and the tongue and the upper trachea. Um, that can cause mortality um, in part because if you get enough of those nodules and they're large enough, they can literally occlude um, your trachea and then the, the birds can't breathe anymore. They um, are also so large in the esophagus that the birds don't want to eat. Um, they don't want to drink. Um, so if those, if you know, the one point I really want to make is you can remove the scabs and the dry pox. That's fine. But if you try to remove um, those nodules and the wet pox, they will they will bleed. Um, they're really um, erosive, and it, it it'll just increase this kind of inflammatory response there. So that is, I, I've, I think I read somewhere once where someone was trying to treat avian pox that way um, in the mouth. And, and once you start seeing those, um, those pox-like lesions on those mucous membranes in the mouth, for example, in the tongue, that's the wet version of avian pox as opposed to that dry version. Those lesions, those scabs, you do not want to remove because, as I, as I just mentioned, they can um, ulcerate and you can cause um, some bleeding and some other problems there and increase swelling and all those things that we just mentioned. Um, the other thing is in that hysteric form, also you can, you can the eye, not the eyelids, but the eyes themselves can be affected. Um, so um, the contrast of the two is pretty dramatic. The wet version will cause much more significant mortality um, than the dry version. But um, for whatever reason, the dry version seems to be much more common than the wet version. Um, it could just be um, how our birds respond to the virus, where they um, uh, how they, um, where the lesions are forming, even though it's the exact same virus, uh, the genetics of the bird might help dictate how they respond to the disease and where they actually show uh, clinical signs and things like that. Okay, awesome. Uh, anything else to, to wrap up the show with on the uh, avian pox that maybe was on your outline that we didn't get to? No, I think we got the most of it. Um, I, you know, I think, again, the thing I really want to reiterate is that it, I think it's really useful to, to go through, you know, some of these less common diseases because I think it just gives us that big picture of not just the basic biosecurity, but the biosecurity beyond our coop. And um, we really need to kind of take a step back and not just look at our coop when we think about biosecurity, but look at the surrounding area, our house, the environment, um, all those type of things in order to kind of, um, really make a much more targeted approach toward our, our biosecurity that, that, that fits with our specific um, scenario as opposed to kind of this generic scenario that we, that we always try to sketch out. Okay, cool. Very cool. Yeah, I, I, I guess not very common, but you see it occasionally on, on the Facebook um, forums and whatnot. They'll say, they have post a picture. Is this, is this foul pox? Is this alien pox? You know, and what do I do? And, you know, you'll, you'll see, there's just so many people now keeping chickens. And, and, and with the uh, social media, you'll, you'll see it occasionally on there. And uh, um, so, so it's out there, and people, um, it's, it's great to be uh, aware. And, and, again, like this show that's archived, people I can just post a link and say, hey, go, go listen to this, and then you can make your kind of decision on what you want to do and how you want to handle that. So uh, it was great, and I love covering things like this. So thanks so much for, for joining us today, Doc, and um, 
we will see you, let's see, it's December, you're back in January, so um, happy holidays, Merry Christmas, happy Hanukkah, happy New Year, all those great things, because I think you'll be back on, let me look at the date here, switch over here to January, I think the 12th, Uh, so everything will be kind of over by the time you get back here, but you and I, of course, be in contact regarding the book and that information so we can get started on that. But thanks so much for a great year uh, of uh, poultry education here on the show, and we look forward to a wonderful 2017 working with you. Great. Thank you, Andy. Happy holidays to you, too. Happy New Year. Great. Thank you so much. Uh, Again, that's uh, Dr. Maurice Poteski, poultry veterinarian, and uh, talking about uh, avian pot. That's going to wrap up the show. We hope that you'll join us next Thursday, 2 p.m. Eastern, because we're going to have our holiday gift guide, if you will, uh, from stocking stuffers to poops to chicken swings and toys and treats and all kinds of things uh, that you can get for that chicken lover in your life. So that will be next Thursday, 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, right here on Blog Talk Radio. Uh, God bless, everybody. Thank <laughs> you.